been good to worship with you. And uh, thank you, Pastor Joshua, for uh, leading us in, in praying for one another and for the persecuted church. And I just want to note uh, today is the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. And in your bulletin, you will find this handout here that gives us some specific ways uh, to pray. Um, let me go ahead and read from the front uh, of this page. Um, and it talks about persecution being on the rise. More than 360 million Christians worldwide suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. Can, can you imagine that number? 360 million. We're, we're talking about, think about the population of our own country compared to that number in the world today are actively facing persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's a staggering one in seven believers worldwide. According to the Ministry of Open Doors, that raises awareness and support of the worldwide persecuted church. The number of Christians where, sorry, the number of countries where Christians suffer high and extreme levels of persecution has almost doubled in the last 30 years. So what is, what is persecution? Persecution takes many forms and often looks different in various contexts throughout the world. Believers might be separated from their families or ostracized by their communities. They may face discrimination in the workplace or education system. They could lose jobs or become the target of extremists. They might have to flee their homes or even face imprisonment, torture, or death. Now, I would just want to stop and say for a moment, while uh, in relation to many of these places, our country may not persecute at the same level, uh, beware saying there's no persecution here or, or thinking that. Because, you know, when Jesus talks about in, in Matthew chapter 5, as he goes through the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about rejoicing when they mock you, when they say evil about you falsely on my namesake, he says, he is defining scorn as a form of persecution. And if you stand for Jesus and you make him known um, at the workplace, at your workplace, do you think you might actually face persecution? Well, I, I hope I won't at my workplace. But you know what? In my neighborhood, I will. Right? And, and so, so we need to remember this. Uh, and I think this is important. Because why pray for persecuted believers? The world's greatest problem, lostness, is growing every day. As believers, we have the solution to that problem, the gospel. When we pray for persecuted believers, God uses their witness to inspire gospel transformation among the lost. Now, the back of this sheet gives eight ways that we can stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in prayer. All right? And you'll note I'm not going to take the time to read each of them now, but if you, you'll, you'll note that there's actually more uh, request here for prayer for their gospel witness, their boldness, even as they're being persecuted. There's more uh, uh, emphasis on that than praying for their relief. In fact, over the decades, our, our brothers and sisters in Jesus in East Asia have specifically asked that we not pray for relief, but for boldness. Because they're afraid that, that if it, it becomes less, and actually it's become greater in the last couple centuries or, or decades, some of them may even regret that, um, that, that prayer request they made. 
but, but they're concerned that they may stop sharing if life becomes too comfortable, okay? Uh, but the reason I say that, that we should never think, well, we're never persecuted, they are, it, it, it can end up being this thing where we think it's okay to live a comfortable life with no opposition. But if, if you stand for Jesus, you will, there will be opposition because the enemy does not like it. Does that make sense? So let's pray. As we remember our brothers and sisters in Christ who are uh, persecuted in greater manner than we are, let's make sure we're standing with them by taking every opportunity we have to make Christ known in our own society, in our own orbit, in our own neighborhoods. Well, why should we pray for boldness more than for relief? Because honestly, that sounds audacious, does it not? Especially when we're talking about someone who may actually lose their family or their life for the gospel's sake. It just seems audacious. But the reason is, hard things are worthy. Following Jesus is not intended to be an easy thing. In fact, following Jesus, really following Jesus is hard. It's not easy. Now there's a sense in which the, the yoke that he gives us is light in that we're not trying to earn our salvation. He gives us peace in our heart and sometimes I believe that peace can grow uh, in the face of opposition, right? Versus stagnation that may come from comfort and a lack of dependence like gut level, heart level, hanging on dependence, But hard things are worthy. And the Christian life was designed by God actually to be hard. Following Jesus is hard, but it is worth it. And so this is what we see Jesus saying in this text that Dr. Joshua read for us this morning. Um, Four short statements that Jesus gives that talk about following him to glory on that road to Calvary. So let's look at these statements one by one. And and the first, Jesus answered them by saying, number one, which is about glory. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now let's remember the context here. We talked about this last week. Jesus had just ridden a donkey into the city of Jerusalem to the adulation of the crowd that was ready to to crown him a physical king of Israel and to lead them in a revolt against Rome. And we're going to see in this conversation here, as well as uh, the conversations we're going to look at in these next couple weeks, that their expectations were frustrated such that many were going to be soon crying out, only in a few short days, crucify him. But Jesus was a king who came here to, to, to give himself on a cross for the sins of mankind, something far greater to liberate us all from the bondage of sin and death, to create a people for himself from every tribe and nation. And here we see seeds of that beginning in this context. Because in verse 20, we read, as Jesus has just entered Jerusalem, Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. In in other words, non-Jews. They may have been from several different people groups or nations, but they're called Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, 
We wish to see Jesus. And as I mentioned last week, the, in the language here, the original language, you see this idea of uh, intentionality and repetition, and they were not going to accept no as an answer. Okay? They want to see Jesus. And so Philip goes, and he gets a little help. He tells Andrew. And so Andrew and Philip both went and told Jesus. And that is the context for this statement. Greeks seeking him now. Not only the Jews, but the Greeks, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see, Jesus is glorified when the nations worship him. And and we're seeing just the beginnings of that here. In fact, we're seeing a transition uh, that John is making now to, to help us see his mission, which is worldwide in scope. So some claim that Christianity is a Western religion. Well, it is not. It is a worldwide faith that began in the Middle East. And frankly, we owe much as Christians today, as American Christians, we we owe a lot of gratitude to the Jews, the people that God called to be his covenant people in the Old Testament. And, and we read in the New Testament, and, and we may forget this sometimes, but Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of salvation for the Jew first, and then for the Greek. And so let us not forget, especially during these harrowing days in Israel, to not only stand with Israel, but let us pray specifically for the salvation of the Jewish people. Romans 11 talks about Paul's longing for his, and and he was the apostle called to the Gentiles, but his longing for his own kindred people to to come to know their Messiah. He even says in another place that, that he would be willing to have his soul accursed if he could trade places. I, I can't imagine saying something like that. Right? But he longs for them to be saved. And he even talks about one day all Israel shall be saved. And I don't even know what that means exactly, other than I think it means a whole bunch of Jews are going to come to know and bow the knee before their Messiah. And we should pray for that and long for that and ask God to not only end this tragedy right now, what's going on, the, the terrorism and the war, but we need to ask God to, to bring many to himself through this. Not only Jews, but even His enemies, right? Even their enemies, we should be praying that God would draw to himself and and draw them to repentance and and faith. And we need to remember that that we have brothers and sisters uh, on both sides of this conflict. We, We actually have Messianic Jews who you may not realize are actually persecuted for their faith in Israel socially. It's a hard time. It's a they're an extreme minority and they face persecution at the hands of of their fellow uh, citizens because of their faith in Yeshua. And and, and on the other side of this whole thing, in in the Palestinian territories, we need to understand that there's actually a greater percentage of Palestinians who follow Jesus than there are of Israelis who follow Jesus. Okay, now they're a minority, and they are kicked in the teeth by groups like Hamas, wicked terrorist groups, okay? Okay. Uh, such that often when a rocket gets fired, and this is before this last 
conflict has started, but often when you read about a rocket being fired from, from like Palestinian turf, right? It's often from a Christian home that groups like Hamas have gone into at gunpoint, set up a missile or a rocket and fired it from their courtyard at gunpoint. And so when the IDF drops a bomb, it's often on the Christian's home. So we need to understand there's nuance, there's complication, but we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters everywhere where they happen to be. Now, some of these Palestinian believers are getting kicked in the teeth from both sides, okay? And they're stuck in the middle of this. So let's, let's not just let the, the, the news dictate how we pray. It should, but make, let's make sure that we pray with a biblical understanding for our persecuted brothers and sisters, wherever they may be, whatever side of a political line they're on. But let's pray that, that God would not only protect, but that he would save Israel. As, as Paul calls us to pray for. But we owe much as Christians, and, and I wish that, there was, that we could say that anti-Semitism is dead in our country, but we can't say that. It is rising up. I, I can't believe what we're seeing on some of the college campuses, right? Where, where, where people are just coming out and saying things against the Jewish people, and yet we're called as Christians to, to love the Jewish people and pray for their salvation and, and show them um, uh, honor. And so I would, I would encourage you to be praying that the Lord would, would comfort, especially uh, Jews here in America right now who are, are just grieving their, not, their own 9-11, right? Um, but let's pray that God would use us through our love to speak uh, the truth of the gospel, because that is all of mankind's greatest need, including the Jews' greatest need, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Romans 11 tells us that we Gentiles were grafted into the olive tree, and so we should never be arrogant towards the branches. Okay, that would be the Jews, he says. We need to remember that our hero Jesus and our heroes, the apostles, who who started the worldwide church, were the Jews. But God's plan for Christianity was designed to not only be Jewish, but to be inherently cross-cultural. And as such, the gospel message in biblical Christianity transcends culture and time. And what that means is that the gospel never grows outdated or irrelevant. Now, other world religions, I'm gonna, gonna, if I haven't already, I'm gonna say some things that might be a little controversial, could get me in, in trouble in certain places, hopefully not with you, Um, But other world religions are very regional, and and they're very much tied to certain cultures. So for instance, Hinduism is very South Asian, and it doesn't mix very well with African or American culture, right? I mean, the, the more you explore Hinduism, you're like, man, that is just really different. Very hard for a Westerner to, 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 to wrap their mind around, but frankly, not only a Westerner. Hinduism doesn't really work well in, in, in Latin American culture, okay? It's very much a South Asian thing. Now, there are places where Hinduism has, 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 has influence, like in Southeast Asia. If you go to the island of Bali, you'll find Bali, though in Indonesia, is majority Hindu. But Hinduism is very much uh, expressed, and it's got a very strong symbiotic relationship with South Asian um, culture. And you can look at Islam. Islam is very much tied to the Middle East. Now, now Islam has traveled some 
through immigration and even more through reproduction. And what I mean there is by large families, through birth. But it is still very much stuck culturally in the Middle East. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, prayers, uh, proper Islamic prayers are always in Arabic. But, but most Muslims in the world do not speak Arabic. And so when they pray, they're, they're, imagine praying in a language that you don't even understand, where you don't really understand the words. Okay, does that, does that make sense? It's a challenge. You go to Indonesia, which has the largest number of Muslims. They, they, these people do not speak Arabic unless they have specifically studied Arabic. You go to northern India, uh, where folks speak Urdu or, or Pakistan, right? Uh, they're having to pray in Arabic, but that is not their language. And so then you have other issues, like say Ramadan, which is one of the big holidays, right? The, the whole month where you're supposed to fast during the daylight. But Ramadan is very much a, a product of Middle Eastern culture, and it gets really complicated if you happen to live in northern Norway, where, where Ram, when Ramadan hits a summer month, and, and you happen to live there where you are not allowed to eat uh, when, 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 it's, when it's dark. Okay, um, th- and I'm not making this up. This has posed some real problems when the Malaysians sent their first astronaut up to the International Space Station. This was, a, 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 this was a, uh, a, an issue of great national pride. Here they had an astronaut, you know, who had trained and just a great scientist and, a, and a, you know, amazing guy who, who goes up to the International Space Station but he, as a Muslim, how could he pray possibly from space, being that you have to face Mecca at all times while you pray? And so they, and it just, it's not scientifically possible as you're constantly orbiting the earth to always be facing Mecca unless you've got some, you know, billion dollar gyroscopic instrument that NASA was not going to build them, right? And so uh, they convened a big uh, council and, and, and all the big spiritual leaders, the mullahs, came together and debated over days, how can this be? As a Muslim, he represents us, he has to pray, but he can't face Mecca. This is just an inherent, we're stuck, we're in trouble. And, and the conclusion was finally, you know, they kind of put their hands in the air and say, God knows the heart, he has to just do his best to face Mecca, even though it won't be possible. Well, some world religions would claim conversions in the West, but the truth is, these are often very rare And I'm going to just go so far as to say a lot of times they are, quote, what I call wannabe conversions. And let me give you an example. And and again, I might sound harsh here. But uh, years ago, when we were in Central Asia, um, our family took a little trip to Bali. And and, uh, it was a little vacation kind of trip. We had visited my sister in a country nearby. And so we, we, we found a cheap ticket, got to Bali, and we were staying in this neat little place in a town called Ubud. And in this little kind of beautiful little uh, town um, with a lot of hand, like rock and wood carvers live this place. And and we're staying in this cute little hotel with maybe 10 rooms. And uh, they had just finished uh, filming a a movie. I think it was called Eat, Love, Pray or something like that. I've never even watched it. Um, But they had just finished filming this this movie right there in the the streets of this little town. And so some of the the producer and a couple of the the film crew folks were still there, and they were staying at the same place where we were. And so this little hotel had some cute little gardens and some little stone carvings. And Tim, my son, who's actually at the youth camp out, 
Um, maybe I shouldn't tell this story without getting his permission. I don't think he would mind. He was maybe three or four years old, okay? And so there was this particularly stone-carved frog that had really caught his attention. And he was, he was a little bit afraid of this statue. And it was in, in the middle of like a garden and there were some other statues. But he, had re- he kept repeating to me every time he saw it, that is not a real frog. I'm like, that's right, Tim. That is not a real frog. Some of you are wondering where I'm going with this. Okay. Um, well, anyway, uh, our, our final morning there, we're having breakfast, and everyone kind of eats at these little tables. You know, like I said, there are only 10, 10 little villas at this place. Um, and, and so some of the guy, the producer, a camera, the head camera guy, a couple of the film crew were kind of sitting there at another table next to ours. And, and so you kind of get to know people a little bit because it's a little patio, everybody has breakfast. And so the, 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 one of the guys kind of comes over to me and he says, he says, your son is special. He's Zen. And I said, okay, really? He says, last night he said something to us and we stayed up for, we stayed up late discussing the meaning. I said, wow, okay. Uh, What was it? He says, he looked at us and he pointed at that frog, that statue of a frog. And he said, this is a frog. This is not a real frog. He said, there's deep meaning in this young man. And we were talking about it. Like, we're talking about it now over there at the table. And and, and, and so I I, I said, hey, Tim, come here. I said, Tim, listen to me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But anyway, it turns out these guys were what I'll call wannabe Buddhists. All right? They were kind of these Hollywood guys who saw themselves as Buddhists, but I'm pretty sure if they went and spent some time in, in Tibet, uh, they'd be rejected pretty quickly for, for being wannabes, all right? And we've got a lot of that going on. Um, uh, even in our nation, people who, who will respond to, to things they don't like by saying, well, I'm a, I'm a Muslim. Uh, let me tell you, if they went to Afghanistan, life would not go well for them. In fact, their lives may be short because they're being counterfeit or wannabe Muslims. And so I'm, I'm, I'm postulating here that, that, that the great world religions that people call the great world religions are very much stuck in certain cultures and certain geographies, certain spaces. And yet Christianity was designed by God to be multicultural, to, to inhabit the culture of every tribe and tongue and language. And this is what we see happening today where Christianity is flourishing in Latin America and in Africa and in Asia and where we have much to learn from our brothers and sisters in these places where it has taken, it may look slightly different in in maybe uh, uh, the worship styles, okay, and certainly the worship languages where it is contextualized in their culture, but where the gospel roots, where the deepest truths have transmitted through hearts and, and are changing the world. And so here we see a transition even, a, a pivot in John from Jesus' primary ministry to the Jews to a worldwide focus. Such we're going to see in verse 32 where Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, he doesn't mean every human being on earth. As, as American individualists, we tend to read texts like this and we think, well, how does that work? He, he just said, I'm going to save everybody, but not everybody's saved. This is a contradiction, right? Uh, again, 
we all have certain lenses on when we read the Bible. We come from an individualistic culture, and so it's natural for us to go there because we, I've got my American lens on here, right? In a more communal culture, where you, you read that communally, you may understand something slightly different, and I think it would be more accurate to understand here what Jesus means is not every individual person, but he will draw every single people group, every He's going to bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to know him. And they're going to to come to follow him and to worship him. And we see John writing about this later in the book of Revelation. Where in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9, he says, "The, The crowd worships the lamb and says, By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then we see in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, and and notice here that the people who are holding the palm branches are not just the Jews who are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, but are now members of every tribe and tongue and language group. So after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so Jesus states that now the the moment of his glory is at hand as we are starting to see the nations come to him. But the way to glory for Jesus was through the cross. He was on the road. Even as he walked into Jerusalem, he was on the road to Calvary. And so our second point this morning is death with his second statement. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, now we're not living in Kansas uh, in an agricultural community. So maybe we need to think here acorns. We got a lot we don't have a lot of wheat, but we got a lot of acorns, all right? And I don't know what kind of trees you have at your house, but I got a couple big old oak trees and they are raining acorns right now. I wish they would stop. I got to I got to rake all those acorns up. I can't even rake them all up, but I try because you know what happens in the spring, right? Suddenly you get hundreds of little shoots of little little oak trees, right? And I pay Christine 5 cents a uh, 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 if she can pull up a weed that's got an acorn attached, she gets five cents a weed, right? And, and, and so, um, you know, she's, she's kind of draining my, my, my bank account down a little bit here, my balance a little bit. But, but we have acorns, right? But think about um, how a kernel of wheat is even smaller than an acorn. Um, but one kernel, if it's cast into the ground, it, it dies and it resurrects with a plant that has five wheat heads on it, and each wheat head has 22 kernels, right? So that's over a hundredfold, right, if it keeps going. Well, Jesus was on a mission here to, to die for our sins. But his worldwide church, which was started by his Jewish disciples, sprung up as a result of his resurrection, and it's continuing to multiply today across every tribe and tongue and nation. So whether it be Wano's gathering in the, in the mountain villages of, of Papua, 
or whether it be Afghans gathering in, in small house churches with, with you know, uh, 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 the world against them, right? Or whether it's us right here in a, in a big room with, with freedom that we are thankful for and blessed by, we are together worshiping one master, one savior, one God and father, one spirit. And so we have sprung up as a result of Jesus' resurrection. Now, I, I love the, the motto of the PJs, the, the pararescue guys in the Air Force, right? Their motto is, these things we do so that others may live. Now, now that idea, so that others may live, that's a very Christian idea, right? And it originated with Jesus. Jesus died so that others may live. He laid down his life so that we could be rescued from our sins. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so church, I, I just want to, and I've said this before, but, but I, I just want us to stop with an application here and remember that we should never take Jesus's death for granted. He died for us. Let's not forget the sacrifice that he made to save us from our sins. Galatians 3.13 talks about him actually becoming a curse for us. And let's not forget that this love that was on his heart was for each of us. One, one pastor wrote, like a grain of wheat falling into the dirt and producing a harvest, Jesus refuses to stay in the ground. He crushes death by rising from the grave. He wins. Death is defeated and Jesus reigns over everything. And that was the end. Jesus was on a road to Calvary, but that wasn't the end. The end was his resurrection and the glory he would receive from his father and the glory that he will receive when, when members of every tribe, tongue, and nation worship him. But Jesus calls us to follow him in his death and his resurrection. And so that's the third statement he made which is about loss. Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now there's wisdom in long-term thinking. You know, so much in our society today is about cheap, instant gratification, but that is not the Christian life. Jesus here, when he says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's not talking about self-loathing. Okay, if, if you have that tendency, uh, let me just tell you, that is not what he wants for you. He, he loves you so much that he gave his life for you. He loves you. He delights in you, right? He delights in you because of his grace. So he's not calling us to a worm theology here, of self-loathing, Jesus is talking about self-denial. And we know this is true in life. If you're a runner, which I'm not, but if you're a runner, you know that self-denial is a part of the package, right? You don't just stop running when you get tired or when your body rebels, right? You keep running. It's true for musicians, right? You want to be a successful musician, what do you have to do? You've got to practice. Do you always feel like practicing? Maybe you'd rather watch TV, right? This is true for academics, right? You may, if you're in school, kids, do you feel like studying as hard as maybe you should for that test? 
No, but if you want to be successful, you overstudy, right? Um, this is true for marriage. What, what, is the, what is the secret to a to happy marriage? Well, it's certainly abiding and vine together, building your, building your relationship together around Christ, right? Um, um, it, it's about making sure that, that he is that center strand that your two lives are being wound around. But, but practically, the, the, the key to a happy marriage is the art of dying to self, right? Putting someone else first. And that's what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about self-denial. The art, and I'll call it an art because it is not a science. Uh, it ain't easy, okay? We never get it totally right, but it should be a trajectory for the Christian. That is the art of dying to self. Now, if you've got an English a Standard Version study Bible, I think it explains these concepts pretty well down in, in the notes. It, it, it says that loving his life means delighting in his life, that is Jesus' life. Uh, I, I'm sorry, let me, let me back up. Loving his life, meaning your own life, means delighting in your life in this world more than you delight in God. And is that a temptation? In a comfortable society? Yes, it is. It's a deadly temptation. And the ESV Study Bible puts that hating his life in this world means, by contrast, thinks so little of his life and so much of God that he is willing to sacrifice it all for God. You see, Jesus turns everything upside down in his kingdom. The way to greatness, we read, is through humility, right? First Peter 5, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. In fact, we're supposed to die to self every day. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Pastor Kent Hughes explains, unless there is death, the vast possibilities inside us will not be released. We will shrivel and remain alone. Dying is a daily requirement for spiritual vitality. In Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's a, a man named George Mueller who really made a difference in his life and ministry. And, and, and Mueller was just a, a man of faith and prayer. Uh, he's influenced thousands for the gospel. And I see you guys all looking up. Is there a bird flying around or something? Or is there a bat or something? Anyway, if you see a little bird, there it is. Uh, boring. Let's come back to the word here. Um, Mueller cared for over 10,000 orphans. Last night, last night we, we got to hear a great, um, had a neat banquet and got to hear from Heart of the Bride, what a wonderful ministry, caring for orphans. Uh, God's heart is for the orphan, right? Mueller um, established over 117 schools, Christian schools, that, that trained nearly 120,000 kids who are from like uh, really needy backgrounds and, and trained them in, in, in uh, and, and how to read and write and do math and all that, but train them in the Bible. And, and, and so he made this huge difference with his life. And one day somebody asked Mueller about the secret to his life's ministry. And you know what he did? He actually kind of hung his head down. 
And he didn't puff his chest out. He kind of hung his head down. And here's what he said. He said, there was a day when I died. Died to George Mueller, his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, his will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame even of brethren or friends. And I have to say, I was convicted this week when I read that. John Piper writes, and I put this in the pastoral email this week, um, here the destination is eternal life. And you can miss it by loving your life. That is, by making your goal in life to be safe and secure and comfortable and surrounded only by pleasant things. Again, I'm convicted. That is the pathway to perishing. Or, Jesus says, you can take another path and arrive at eternal life. That path is called hating your life in this world. Notice that he adds, in this world. Hating your life in this world means that you will choose to do things that look foolish to the world. You will deny yourself things and take risks and embrace the path of suffering for the sake of love. This, Jesus says, will lead to eternal life, not death. I thought of Paul's statement in Philippians 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. A nice house, a nice job, the perfect family, esteem. He's willing to count that as rubbish. Not that those are not lovely things, but for the sake of knowing Christ. Jesus is our hero. He showed us the way. What I love about Jesus, I love many things about Jesus, but I love the fact that he didn't just talk these things, but he did it. He did it to show us the way, and so we're called to follow his example, and that is not going to be easy in a fallen world. And anyone who tells you otherwise is a shyster. They're selling something, right? Maybe, they're, maybe themselves, Maybe their own power or money or, or greed or something, trying to get you to give them money. Um, following Jesus is not easy. It's hard, but it's worthy. Glory awaits. And that's our last point, Jesus' last statement. He talks about reward. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So following him is our duty, and where I am is our reward. So where is Jesus? Well, when he said this, he was on his way to Calvary, but now he is in heaven. And Jesus says to his disciples, who are also going to follow him on the path of suffering, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? That's where he is right now, preparing a place for us. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is a great reward to be with Christ. And, and then he says, we will be honored by his father. 
I can't, I can't fully imagine that. Philippians 2 talks about, about Christ being honored by his Father. And somehow we, we read here that his Father will honor those who follow his Son. We get this glorious promise in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And man, if you're suffering right now, I, I hope you'll hang on to this. I hope you'll sink your heart into it. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do, do you want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant? Well, let's die to self and let's run to win the race following after our, our hero Jesus. Let's, let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for our, our Savior Christ. We thank you for the, the, the blood that he spilled on Calvary for us. We didn't deserve it, but he fulfilled his mission. He was willing to die in our place. So I pray that you'd help us to take up our crosses to follow him. Lord, I pray that we would reject the siren of comfort that our society wants to hold out to us. To us. Lord, I pray that we would step out and be willing to take the heat that the devil's going to bring and the world will bring if, if we make it known that we belong to Jesus. But Lord, I pray that we would boldly make him known uh, everywhere we are, on our, in, our, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces, and in our schools. Lord, I pray that we would follow Jesus and that uh, we would follow him to glory. Lord, as we prepare our hearts now to commune with him and to commune with our brothers and sisters around the world, many of whom are suffering greater than we for for being uh, yours. Lord, we, we just pray that you would unite our hearts in love and in resolve to honor Christ. In his name I pray, amen.